0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Well, big welcome, especially anybody who's online or here in person for the first time. And it's, um, I don't say it as often as I used to, but it's really important, um, even though it's hard having an online community and an in person community. And of course, many people couple hundred at least, usually watch the YouTube uh, on our YouTube channel, the live stream there. It sits there. You can always re-watch it yourself if you want. So a lot of different people in our community. And it's nice just to sense that so that we feel actually like a community instead of, you know, I'm all alone with my practice. And it is something, you know, what we're doing, it, it really is something against the stream. And that's, so we don't just emphasize community because it, it's nice to emphasize community. It's it's pragmatic. Like when we remember we're not alone, and especially what I'll be talking about the next few weeks, this Pali word is dukkha. A lot of you know that, but some of the new folks may not, and it means suffering. It's not a great translation. It really refers to how... Being a human being, having a mind and body, having an existence, doesn't really work. You know, we never get to the place where we're completely satisfied. Have you noticed? Never. (laughs) We sometimes think we're at that place, but eventually we realize, no, that wasn't that place. I was talking to one of our leaders this morning. They just came back from one of those nice tropical winter vacations for Minnesotans, And uh, you know, so even in those moments when it's nice, it's so strange to catch ourselves fantasizing about a vacation when we're on vacation, (laughs) or the conditions are really nice, but we can imagine them being even nicer, (laughs) you know, like if just the surf wasn't so rough, (laughs) or if it just wasn't so tranquil, you know, if there's just a little bit more action, few more clouds, something that it's always we're never that content and this is one of the meanings of that word dukkha it has sort of different connotations you know, gross, medium and subtle and the gross part of dukkha just means when we're exposed to an unpleasant physical experience, pain or an unpleasant mental experience, like emotional pain, loss, for example, or just anxiety about our financial situation or something like that. So we have ordinary pain, that's dukkha dukkha, is the Pali, (laughs) and then there's viparanama dukkha, which is even when I have that nice situation, somewhere, even if I'm not fully conscious of it, somewhere the mind knows. I can't count on it like vacation will end or the sun will go behind a cloud or you know the sun will come out of the cloud and be too hot again so there's something unstable like even when we have a nice situation we can't bank on it we can't really tie it down I have health now relatively but I can't like own it put it in the bank, I've got that physical health. Some of you in the room know very well how radically things can change around that. Same with our relationships. Seems stable, but then something can change in our close relationships that to us might feel like a betrayal or out of the box or unexpected. And yet, we shouldn't be surprised because we're reading about it all of the time, hearing about it from our friends, how Like uh, one of my teachers says, anything can happen anytime. So this is that second kind of understanding. And we want to cultivate a relationship with all aspects of dukkha. It's really the grounding of this path. Like this is how we know we're a spiritual seeker. We've decided at least to some degree not to deny the fact of dukkha, but to kind of it well, this comes hand in hand with existence, with life, with having a mind and a body, so I'm not going to pretend you're not here, dukkha, right, I'm going to notice that even as I navigate today, there will be pleasure and pain, the first bites of lunch will be good and then if I eat too much it will be painful, right, something like that, and anticipating lunch, that's unpleasant, then when I get it, that unpleasantness of anticipating it goes away and there's maybe a little pleasure. And then when I keep eating after I'm full, it starts getting unpleasant again, you know. And then when my negative thinking kicks in, why do I always eat so much? That also will be unpleasant. And on and on. Ajahn Chah in this article that I've linked to in the document that I mentioned at the beginning, so if you weren't online or here in the room, so uh, I have an ongoing Google Doc for the weekly practice group. It has the chant that we do. It has the link to su- support the center and the teacher. And it has a bunch of articles that align with the talks that I've been giving. So since uh, late January, I've been giving talks on the three characteristics. We're kind of in the middle of that. So probably go until the end of April, I'm guessing some, somewhere like that. And so there's you know, already 15 or so articles that go with that topic. So those of you who want to do more study, you don't have to, of course. You can find it there at that document. And it's always there in the calendar event for this 10.30 Sunday morning weekly practice group. And uh, one of the articles is this article by Ajahn Chah, this very well-known Thai Buddhist monk meditation teacher who died in the 90s and quite influential of this early Buddhist tradition coming here to the West. People like Jack Hornfield and Ajahn Samedo and many other people had the opportunity to practice directly with Ajahn Chah before he passed away. Um, But they're just the reverberations of his teachings. And this article is quite powerful. And like I said, the teachings, the Buddhist teachings on Dukkha are provocative, because they're saying really that existence, having a life, the fundamental truth of that, like the the most obvious thing about being a human being is Dukkha. But it's interesting that we wouldn't necessarily say that in a multiple choice quiz, you know, (laughs) you get some options, you know, what is it to be a human being, you you know? green pastures you know nice conditions dukkha mixed bag you know a lot of us might say mixed bag some maybe some really deluded people would say oh it's just great you know just rosy glasses on and but a wise person realized that even the nice experience is not a refuge it's still a nice experience And we still, all of us, prefer pleasure over pain, right? So it's, we're not stupid. (laughs) We know the difference between pleasure and pain, but not being stupid, we're interested in pleasure. And we're interested then, when we're interested in pleasure, we see the fragility of pleasure. We can't count on it. However nice, however seemingly stable it is, on some level, when we're honest, and we contemplate the basic reality, we realize, like the chant we did, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. That's just the bottom line, was like the joke, maybe you've heard this joke, you know, somebody dies, somebody who had a lot of resources dies, and uh, how does it go now, I forget, <laughs> what did he leave behind? Um but, you know, the, I can't remember the joke, sorry. <laughs> but, but the idea is like, of course, you don't take anything with you, you know. It all gets left behind. And, oh, it's something like, well, what did he leave behind? Well, of course, everything, right? Because you don't take anything with you. Whatever you accumulate, knowledge, it all goes. Somebody asked a, a famous, a controversial Tibetan teacher, this is a long time ago, 50 years or more ago, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, um, what takes rebirth? This is sort of a very interesting question in, in Buddhism, what takes rebirth? And uh, a simple and funny answer, and this is what this uh, Tibetan Rinpoche said, well, you know, your neurotic, unfinished business is what takes rebirth, <laughs> that's what takes rebirth. Whatever is unfinished, unripe, neurotic, that's what continues on. That's the restless ongoingness of our human minds, is wrong understanding, you know, or misperceiving and misunderstanding. And I'll just read this from this, uh, this uh, article that I'm encouraging people to take a look at that's linked in that document it's called Understanding Dukkha by Ajahn Chah. And uh, he starts out with this opening statement. It sticks on the skin and goes into the flesh. From the flesh it gets into the bones. It's like an insect on a tree that eats through the bark, into the wood, and then gets into the core until finally the tree dies. We used to have one of those beautiful uh, ash trees just right over there. Some of you might remember, you know, Planted a long time ago, maybe in 1950, because that's when they developed this uh, cafe that was here, the little diner, family diner that was right there. Um, They probably planted it there. But anyway, it got that ash borer disease, you know, and it's gone. And another simile the Buddha used are those encircling vines that they have in the tropics, where birds, you know, eat a seed of one of these vines drops it on one of the branches of the big tropical hardwoods and the vine could start growing right on the branch of a tree eventually it drops roots down into the ground even if the branches dozens of feet up and over time a lot of time that vine will completely encircle the tropical hardwood and then other tropical hardwood trees next to it and they could be like as big as a city block or bigger some of those Vines that um, completely take over part of a forest and the tropics. And that was the image the Buddha used for these ideas that Ajahn Chah is going to talk about. So he continues, he writes, or he probably didn't write this, it's just a transcription of a talk he gave. We grow up like that. It gets buried deep inside. Our parents taught us grasping and attachment giving meaning to things, believing firmly that we exist as a self-entity, right, or a separate self-entity, right? Because that's what we believe, because we were taught to believe that. And that things belong to us. I mean, thats it seems so obvious that these are my pants, but there is nothing in these pants that are actually mine. You know, I mean, I wear them. People haven't taken them from me. But, you know, it's like, it's funny how that is. It's like, no, no, they're really mine. Just like we think, you know, this land is ours. Mm. Until it isn't. (laughs) You know, until somebody comes along with bigger guns or whatever. And so this idea of possession, this is why it hurts when we lose something or somebody robs us. Because we had this idea that that was actually mine. Or this land that my house is on, or my apartment's on, or whatever, it's mine in some way. Or even this body, now it's getting interesting with body parts getting replaced. Some of you probably have new hips and knees, and it's like, yeah, mine? I mean, what does that mean, mine? It's just an idea we have, my car until I sell it, then it's not my car. You know, my partner until no longer, or whatever. and. Uh, So that's the idea. It's not that we're saying it's nothing, these possessions. They are what they are, but they're not our idea of what they are. These pants are not my interpretation, my pants. They're just pants that has been spending a lot of time in my washing machine and (laughs) my house and on my body. And they'll be mine, you know, in that conventional sense until I give them away or somebody takes them. Yeah, and that things belong to us. From our birth, that's what we've been taught. We hear this over and over again, and it penetrates our hearts. It stays there as our habitual feeling. Like, that's what happens in the conditioning process, right? It's like, what what do parents do with little kids? You know, we teach them, you're this person, and I'm mommy, I'm daddy, I'm your parent. You know, we help them distinguish this and that we invent this dualistic world you can kind of get a sense you know with simple beings and infants you know when you just kind of align with their energy it's like things are much more open and undefined right it's like it's kind of why we like being out in nature a little bit it's our human mind that divides things up it's a, the over-dependence and attachment we have to language and what the meaning that language can construct. And then we get deluded by it. It's like uh, another, uh, one of my teachers said, you know, it's like kids dressing up as pirates for Halloween and then looking in the mirror and getting frightened. Oh my God, a pirate, you know, or whatever, a ghost. Because we're concocting, like, the idea of loss, or the idea of death, or the idea of somebody being better than me, or somebody insulting me, right? That's That exists as a mental construction that my mind constructed, and then I react to that construction. Maybe you don't like me, right? And then we, or maybe you do like me. So we're constantly, this is that more subtle part of dukkha I forgot to mention so we have regular dukkha of pain mental and physical then we have the dukkha of loss like when something is good but we know on some level we can't own it can't have it forever and then there's even sankara dukkha as it's said in pali called in pali it's even a more subtle pervasive kind of uneasiness a restless anxious uneasiness and it really has to do with the meaning the conceptualizing mind constructs this dualistic world of good and bad happiness and unhappiness and it there's a restlessness in it because there's a somebody who wants solid ground who can't find it in the world that we've created that's the problem it isn't something fundamentally wrong in the absolute sense maybe But it's absolutely something off with the world that our mind constructs. Because the refuge all of us seek, we're all seeking some kind of refuge. Just let me warm up. I mean, it could be simple. In some moments when we're really cold, I just want to warm up. And we don't really care about anything else. But other moments, it's sort of like, I need a place that's safe, you know, a house. I think I'll get one of those metal roofs because they're last. Forever, you know, and one of those cars that don't rust, and it's like, oh yeah, we we're always thinking about utopias. And I'm going to get into shape so my health doesn't go away, and we start eating right. Maybe I'll do Pilates. You know, it's like whatever will give us a sense of permanence. But see, underneath that is that anxious restlessness. Because we're looking for refuge in what isn't actually a refuge. There is something insecure in all of the refuges we look to as a refuge. They're not permanent. We can't count on them. But we don't know any better. We don't have a better choice, we think, so we just pursue it anyway. So so in a way, we all live that lie. We're all pretending that our refuges are actually worth pursuing. And we don't, you know, we don't uh, generally with our friends, we don't point that out. And we certainly don't point that out to ourselves. Unless we become a spiritual seeker. And then we kind of find joy in doing that. Even when it bothers us, when our friend kind of mirrors back, you know, you seem to be pursuing this as if it's going to make you happy. It's like the joke I used to tell from Susan Piver article, really great line. I mean, from her own life, she was having a conversation with someone. This is a Buddhist author and teacher. And uh, she was at a retreat and met somebody for the first time, and they had a nice conversation at the dinner before the retreat began. And he had mentioned, you know, that i recently gotten involved, and now this younger person wants to move in with me, and so he's sharing this. Buddhist retreats, you can get really close quickly. Some of you know that. And... uh And then before the dinner was over, he asked, well, what do you think? Do you think it can work out? And this uh, wonderful author, Susan Piper, had this great response. Um, Of course it can work out, as long as you don't think it's going to make you happy. And that is such a good line about whatever we do end up pursuing in life, go for it. Learn to play tennis, learn Spanish, fall in love, get a divorce, change your job, stick with your job, Whatever, retire, don't retire, keep working. Do whatever you want to do as long as you don't think it's going to make you happy. Because as soon as you're doing it, in order for it to make you happy, you've got that anxiety because on some level you know it won't make you happy and at some point it will prove to you that it won't make you happy. And there will be a betrayal. And that really hurts, you know. When, what hurts isn't that things change. What hurts is we didn't think they were going to change. That's what really smarts. Not when we get sick, but that we didn't somehow think that having a human body, we wouldn't get sick or get old or that the relationship, you know, when we say that to our partners, whether, you know, it's a formal wedding or just informally, we say, you know, I'm here for you. We have to understand that's aspirational. It, we always should be tagging, but we don't know honestly how this is going to play out. But it feels really good for me to say to you right now: I'm all in, and I want this to work out until you know death. Do us part? Does us whatever that's it. What is it? Death do us part. Death do us part. Somehow, we, you know, when you say things too many times, it <laughs> sounds right. But anyway, you know what I mean. It's like we have to understand that Understanding that we can't hold on doesn't mean we stop living our life. It doesn't mean we don't know the difference between what feels more safe, what feels more insecure. It just means that we're doing it with more wisdom, with a deeper understanding about the nature of our existence. And then that opens us, well, yeah, I'll do what I can, but I'm not going to pretend that's a refuge. And that's really the beginning of being a spiritual being because now we're looking for a refuge that isn't about existence. Now, that's where Buddhism gets really provocative. So, and then mostly what human beings, because we don't, you know, our imagination is limited by our conditioning, we imagine a different existence, right? And what do we call that? Heaven. Or in Buddhist language, you know, a beautiful realm of existence. Because in in Buddhism, they have these different beautiful realms, angelic realms or whatever you might want to call them. But in Buddhism, they're not an end, they're just, it's like living in the suburbs, if you want to live in the suburbs, (laughs) or living downtown, if that's your thing, or whatever, you know, having what you want is like being in that nice realm of existence until it changes, until it isn't there for you anymore. Right? and so whether you're in a hellish realm or you've got a really uh, existence of a, with a lot of good fortune you're very privileged in your life with health with not being mistreated with you know all the financial security good friends things like that whatever our condition is we realize oh, that's not a refuge so we we begin to consider, okay, I could imagine the perfect utopia, but when I do that, I realize that's also conditioned, that's also something that comes and goes. So maybe this is where, what contemplation, what paying attention, with opening eventually reveals, but we get the pointing out from the Buddha, so we don't have to, you know, Not that we can believe what the Buddha says, but at least it gives us a head start in checking out what we need to check out. Because we have to do this work personally. No one can do it for us. We actually have to check out, will existence deliver the release, the peace, the ease that my heart actually seeks? Whatever existence, right? Will it deliver? Because eventually... In this article, Ajahn Chah uses really provocative language. It's like a bunch of dung, you know, poop from a large animal, right? Sitting there, it's like we're not likely to want to pick it up and keep it, right? We're totally happy just to have a dispassionate relationship. You know, when you walk down the sidewalk and you see dog poop, someone didn't pick up after their dog or whatever, you don't feel any sense of possession or ownership with it. (laughs) But in terms of my existence, and like what I think about myself, or what other, what I think other people think about me, or about my possessions or, those things we're very sticky with. We think absolutely I should hold on. And what the Buddha came to understand, and what we all have to check out in the laboratory of our present moment experience is, is there a peace and a happiness that's much more trustworthy, resilient, resonant, that has to do with, and just to be provocative, a non-attachment, a non-clinging, a non-dependence on existence? Like having an existence, a mind and a body, a life, is the way forward for me, for each of us, to be, living this life, having this existence, with non-attachment, non-dependence, no clinging. Sometimes it's nice, you know, how this existence plays out, sometimes it's not nice, it's painful, sometimes it's ambiguous, but it is what it is, and that non-attachment, we immediately think we we know what non-attachment looks like, you know, sitting and doing nothing. But that's just being attached to sitting and doing nothing. There's no way that non-attachment looks. It doesn't have a look, non-attachment or non-clinging. We've got to get that out of our mind because that's people misinterpret the teachings and then they reject them because it doesn't make sense that, okay, so Buddha's telling me to sit on a couch, well, no, I don't even get a couch. <laughs> I just sit somewhere, you know, but I don't even get a where to sit, you know. Oh, I, but we, immediately, you know, we, we assume a, a, a fixed idea. Okay, this is what that looks like. Well, that's stupid. And we reject it without actually checking it out. So we have the life we have. What does it look like to be at Common Ground on Sunday morning? without clinging, trying to get something from the talk. Because it doesn't help help anybody to get something from the talk, to cling to the talk. Wanting to understand isn't the cause for understanding. The actual, like if you, let's say this desire to understand what the heck Mark is talking about shows up, then wisdom tells you, well if you really want to understand, don't try to understand. Just be in that open, receptive, relaxed, non-clinging place. And you might understand a few things. You're going to understand whatever you can understand. But constructing the sense of a me who really wants to get it so I could be a slightly better Buddhist than the rest of you or something like that, you know, that's a setup for misunderstanding, isn't it? It doesn't help. And this is what we slowly, with some, you know, it takes time because it's not our conditioning to relate this way to our existence with dispassion, with non-clinging, with non-attachment. But we can learn, and mostly we learn because we pay attention and we see that every time we get attached it hurts. And we begin, it's, it's not rocket science, We just have to start paying attention craving or attachment equals dukkha no craving, no attachment no dukkha, any craving or attachment, dukkha dukkha is that heaviness that burdensomeness of our heart and eventually seeing it tens of thousands of times real confidence begins to arise in our mind, like it doesn't matter that the Buddha said it, now we're independent like i know for myself from having paid attention to my own existence when i'm identified with my health then there's tightness when i'm identified with my youthful beauty then there's suffering when i'm identified with financial security even if i haven't there's tightness there's nothing wrong with having financial security But clinging to it, being dependent on it, is suffering. So with whatever money we have in the bank, how to have money in the bank without being dependent on it. Whatever health, beauty, whatever knowledge we have, or competence we have in different ways in life, great. Competence is good. But it isn't a refuge. And it's a way to take care of this life and other lives, right? That's So that's what we end up doing with our energy in life is we take care of everybody because we're not using it neurotically to create a refuge that isn't really a refuge. Let me read. I wanted to read a little bit more here in this opening paragraphs of this article. When we take an interest in meditation and we hear the teaching of a spiritual guide, it's not easy to understand it doesn't really grab us. We're taught not to see and to, not, and to do things the old way. But when we hear the teaching, it doesn't penetrate the mind. We only hear it with our ears. People just don't know themselves, right? So we remain stuck in our self-conceit. And that's the key. Like I said earlier, you know, we have our life, we have our experience like a laboratory and we have these teachings and the teachings are saying what this is any moment of our existence any moment of our life it is only ever dukkha and the cessation of dukkha dukkha is coming and going and the happiness we experience is best to be seen or interpreted as the feeling when dukkha ceases like we're hungry And then we have lunch, and lunch is nice. But lunch is nice because the dukkha of not having lunch has ceased. Or let's say you're with a friend at lunch, and then the loneliness or the wanting to be with my friend, that heavy feeling has ceased because now I'm with my friend. And you can just train your mind to perceive every experience. And I know it sounds a little grim, but it's really about having a more grounded, honest, View things. So as we move through Sunday, you know, just noticing the unpleasantness of your mind or your body, or the fragility of whatever pleasure you have, or just the basic uneasiness of having to manage my refuges, what I'm clinging to, what I'm hoping to have, or trying to get rid of, or just the restlessness of duality of good and bad what I want what I don't want pushed around by our likes and dislikes it's always there we you know we don't see too many catalogs anymore but because we have the internet but it's like so many possibilities maybe I need something We scroll I notice. I don't know I read the New York Times every day and uh, they have a new section these last I don't know five or seven years called the wire cutter where they review products. Some of you know this. And it's for people like me or, you know, even consumer reports like what is the best dishwasher? You know, it's like I, I don't we don't have a dishwasher, we're not looking for one or, or what's the best washing machine or the best electric co- you know, it's like forever we're interested in these things. Best can opener. <laughs> you know, they had even something like who sells the best can of tomatoes, you know? But the the attraction is like somehow it's going to make a somebody happy in some kind of meaningful way. But when we observe with some integrity, we realize, no, that doesn't really, doesn't pan out that way. Because we've gotten so many of those things we thought was going to make a difference. And yet here we remain the same kind of neurotic, anxious, uneasy person. Searching the same way we searched before, getting the same kind of results we've gotten before. And it isn't until somebody kind of slaps us around and says, or grabs us by the collar and says, hey, you need to take a deeper, more subtle look at what's going on. And the great tragedy is so many humans, maybe us some of the time, we're just overwhelmed by the details of life. Too much pain, too much difficulty being mis- you know, abused in our lives in some ways or oppressed in our lives in some ways, that we don't really have the supporting conditions to be interested and in to do that deeper kind of research. Oh, oh, this is how it is. And then on top of that, we need to bump into these teachings. Uh, interestingly, at the time of the Buddha's death, just a little bit before he passed away, um, I'll end with this story, somebody, it was they were outside, you know, and, but they had a little encampment there, and some of the Buddha's close disciples and the other nuns and monks were, had gathered around those in the area because it was sort of a, obviously a really important time. And, and, and they were interested, like, what would the Buddha say in the, his last breaths? And, uh, and, so, and then somebody who had, hadn't been a student of the Buddha but had been looking for him for a while to get some teachings shows up, and Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, said, this is not the time, you know, the Buddha's dying, please. And the Buddha overheard it because he wasn't in a building, you know, he was just like over there. He said, oh, don't worry, Ananda, let him in, you know, this will be quick. And the, this person asks this question, which happens from time to time in the teachings that were collected from the Buddhist time, where he's asking, you know, hey, because it was really evidently true at the time of the Buddha, it was a real alive spiritual time. There were all kinds of different ideas. Jainism was alive and getting started in that part of uh, northern India, and sort of the teachings in the um, the Hindu, the yogic mystical traditions of course were there and you know all kinds of different sort of rich spiritual conversations and so the guy comes to the Buddha and says you know uh, from what I've heard I really like your teachings but I hear so many how do we figure this out you know like what's the right way to practice what's the correct spiritual teaching and the Buddha says something that might initially sound sort of arrogant but he's basically saying that unless teachings Are grounded in the problem that's actually the problem we have, which is what that word dukkha means, suffering. There is suffering. It doesn't just fall from outer space, it arises like everything lawfully, conditionally. So there's a cause. There is dukkha and it's relevant. There's a cause for it and when that those supporting causes for it aren't there, it ceases and there's a way to live your life a path that understands that there is dukkha that it has natural supporting causes and when those supporting causes aren't there there is no dukkha and if a spiritual program doesn't have this then it's not to be followed and if it does have this it's to be followed that was what the buddha said And then the last thing he said, you know, that was like a few minutes before, and then before he died he said, you know, everything is alive with change. Everything is coming and going. When you understand this deeply, you understand peace. So practice with a whole heart. And this is really the truth, like, existence is alive with change. That's what we taught. if you're new... To the group in January and February, that's what I talked about just the truth of a Nietzsche, change, impermanence, the uncertain, uh, unreliable movement of all things. So, when we get that, letting go happens. We don't take existence in any of its ways as a refuge. And just the long and short of it is that letting go can be a refuge. The nod, the intimacy without the attachment turns out to be what our heart seeks. But, you know, we can hear that and then we go home and we're just the same old person. We actually have to check it out. Instead of intimacy with attachment and then being deluded because we're so attached, we're not able to be intimate. But if we can sustain interest and presence, present moment awareness without getting attached to the yucky feelings that come our way or the pleasant feelings that come our way, then we'll get moments where we can sense that freedom of intimacy and non-attachment. And what will come from that is, is this the way? And then there will be an intuitive answer, yeah, I think this might be the way. And that's how the deepening happens. So we need to leave it here. And those of you online, I'm going to pass you over to uh, Lucy, who will divide you in small groups. For those of you who want to stay, you can talk about uh, just your own experience of that connection between suffering and the tension of craving. And if you're not going to stay for the small groups, I recommend that you think about that, contemplate it, and have a conversation maybe with some friends at home. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.